The reading is uh, from um, Mark 9, verse 38 to 50. I think that's right, isn't it? Yep, good. I'm ringing, so uh, just making sure I'm on the right track. And the, um, the little heading here is, whoever is not against us is for us. Teacher said, John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name and we told them to stop because he was not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said, for no one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me, for whoever is not against us is for us. Truly I tell you, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to the Messiah will certainly not lose their reward. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go to hell where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell. Where the worms eat them that do not die and the fire is not quenched. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt amongst yourselves, and be at peace with each other. Thanks, Bob. Now you can see why I'm quite glad that Michael's preaching on this passage. (laughs) Thanks, Michael. Well, thank you very much for your welcome. Um, I'm glad I'm preaching on this passage too, not because I think I can do it better than anybody else, but just because it's a good excuse to be with you here. And I'm also delighted that you are preaching through Mark's Gospel, um, wonderful uh, Gospel, as they all are, of course. But it is good to do these things uh, thoroughly and in sequence. And I must say, I'd figured, uh, looking at your programme and and listening to last week, that if you keep going at this rate, you'll be at the cross by Easter next year. (laughs) But I hear now that you're not carrying on, so I guess you'll have to pick it up again. But uh, it's lovely to uh, be with you today. And I bring greetings from the diocese. Uh, Jay, our bishop, has been in the UK for the second time in the last few weeks, I think. He's went, went over for something to do with uh, GAFCON and all that. Then I think he goes to Rwanda. He comes back to New Zealand, then he goes to Rwanda. Then he goes back to the UK again for the second time. So bring greetings from him and from our other churches, particularly in the North Island. We have uh, three churches in Auckland. I hope you know and you pray for them. And we have uh, the two of us uh, in Hamilton and then the church in Manaya. Uh, that's the North Island contingent. And we try to get together... Uh, every few months, we've stayed, taken lately to getting together up at uh, Cafe at Pocono 
and uh, it's exciting to hear what's going on uh, in the different parishes. Well, let's pray now as we we come to this passage and uh, look at what uh, Jesus is saying to us today. Let's pray. Well, Father, we do thank you for your word to us, your written word, but above all for your living word and your son, Jesus Christ, to which your written word points, to whom he points. Lord, we do pray today as we reflect on this passage that we too might be formed as your disciples, that we might become more like Jesus and closer to him and to one another that there might truly be peace amongst us in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, just a a quick recap of of where you're at, or where I imagine you're at. Uh, Mark's Gospel, the first half of the Gospel, uh, is mostly Jesus uh, ministering uh, in Galilee, and Jesus revealing who he is, and particularly uh, his preaching ministry supported by lots of signs and wonders. And everything's very impressive. And then... There's this theological high point in chapter 8 where uh, it's also uh, the geographical high point, if you like. Jesus uh, goes uh, up to the north area of Israel to a place, Caesarea Philippi, and he asks the disciples, well, you've seen what I've done, you've heard what other people have said, who do you say I am? Because that's really what the gospel's all about. Who do we say Jesus is? And Peter, of course, makes the great confession, you are the Christ. From there, Jesus takes them up Mount Hermon, I believe. It's a very high mountain, and Hermon is the only very high mountain in Israel, as far as I'm concerned, if you're used to proper mountains. And that's at the very northern extreme of geographical Israel. And there, Jesus is transfigured and again speaks of his passion. And from there, if you like, it's downhill all the way, literally, geographically. It's down south, down into the Jordan Valley, along and then up the Judean hills, up to Jerusalem and up to the cross. So this is, in every sense, a turning point in Jesus' ministry where we're at now. It's the heading up to Jerusalem. It's the heading to the cross. And three times Jesus speaks of that directly, predicts it, what's going to happen apart from the reference at the Transfiguration. And he seems to be using this time now, instead of the big public ministry, he's got the disciples together. He's in a house in Capernaum about halfway on the journey. Capernaum, of course, where he'd lived, uh, and uh, by the Sea of Galilee, and he's teaching them what this is really going to be like. They have been expecting a Messiah who would be a great king. And we've seen already in the argument about uh, who's the greatest that you looked at last week, the idea that if you follow Jesus, there are going to be some pretty special rewards. Uh, There's going to be some special status uh, and so on. And Jesus has got to sort all this nonsense out. It's interesting that three times Jesus speaks of his passion, of what he must go through, and three times one of the leading disciples, Peter, James and John, makes a totally inappropriate response. The first one was Peter saying to Jesus, you must not let this happen, this, this passion. Uh, then the argument about who's the greatest. Uh, then we have this example here where John is the one who doesn't want this guy to be doing the deliverance ministry. And then we'll hear James and John arguing about who's going to get the seats on the right and the left. 
So each time Jesus tells them, tries to get through to them what's going to happen, one of his top disciples completely misunderstands or makes a totally inappropriate response. It's quite instructive, isn't it? If they can do that, uh, then there's some excuse for us, perhaps. But Jesus is going to keep at them. He's going to keep working on them. And so this is the next inappropriate response. John coming to Jesus and saying, Lord, this guy was casting out demons in your name. How dare he? We stopped him. We sorted him. Now, I have the feeling, and you've got to try and put yourself in these situations, that the disciples were feeling a little bit chastened after Jesus ticking them off about their discussion on the road about who was the greatest. They had some ground to recover with Jesus, didn't they? And they thought, now we've really done something Jesus is going to be proud of. We've stopped people using his name who had no authority to. And who better to break the news to Jesus than the beloved disciple John? So John doesn't ask Jesus if he's done the right thing. He tells him. He says, Lord, we've done this. Surely you're going to be pleased with us. And of course, he doesn't get the response he wanted. Now, there's a triple irony here. The first irony is, that this man was successful in driving demons out. We remember the disciples weren't. After the transfiguration, they came down from the mountain. There was a boy who was uh, having epileptic fits thrown into the fire. And the question was, why couldn't the disciples drive out this demon? So here's a guy who was driving out demons and showing up the disciples. And yet they have the nerve to try and stop him. Secondly, notice what John says. This man did not follow us. He's not a follower of us. What's John thinking? Why would this guy be a follower of us? Surely his concern is whether he's a follower of Jesus. So you see what's really going on at the disciples' mind. They're not really concerned so much about Jesus' reputation. They're concerned that they are the 12. They represent the new Israel, the 12 tribes. Who's this guy trying to muscle in on their closed group? And the third irony is that, yes, this guy was acting, it seems, without Jesus' specific authority, but surely they were too and trying to stop him. Jesus hadn't sent them to stop him. So no wonder Jesus is not impressed. Actually, he's quite gracious, isn't he? He simply says, no, don't stop him. Now, this echoes here of what happened uh, in the wilderness. Remember uh, when Moses uh, was leading the children of Israel out and they get to the stage where there's just too much burden on Moses? to carry all the load of sorting people's squabbles out. Not that God's people often have squabbles, but it can happen and there's a big load. And so God said, set 70 elders aside, bring them from outside the camp, bring them to the tent of meeting and I will put my spirit in them and they can help you. And what happens? 
two guys back in camp, Eldad and Medad, they start prophesying. They get the spirit too. And Joshua is just like John. Joshua comes running to Moses and he says, Hey, Moses, there's these two guys back in the camp that you didn't call out. And they are prophesying. They've got the spirit. My Lord Moses, he said, stop them. And Moses' response, Are you jealous for me, he says? Surely it will be great if everyone prophesied. Moses isn't interested in that party spirit either. Jesus says what's really important here is whether Satan is being driven back. What's important here is, is my name being used to build up the kingdom or to discredit it? Now think about it. Think what it would have been like to have watched the disciples trying to sort this exorcist out. What sort of witness were they giving to the exorcist himself? I mean, he clearly had the power of the Spirit, or he wouldn't have been able to drive out those demons. We know that happened in Acts. The sons of Siva, remember, tried to drive out demons in Jesus' name, and the demons just laughed at them. So this man clearly had the anointing of the Holy Spirit. He might not have had the authority in the sense the disciples understood it, but he certainly had authority. He had authority from the Holy Spirit, from God. He clearly had faith, faith in the name of Jesus. He wasn't glorifying himself. And he was kicking Satan into touch. Jesus says, surely that's the point. Why would you be precious about your own status, your own little territory, when this man is doing the work that I've come to do and commissioned you to do? And actually, you have failed him. He says, no, this man, having driven out demons in my name, is hardly going to speak against me. Unlike the religious leaders, remember, who said he drives out demons by Beelzebub, which provoked Jesus' response, those who are not for us are against us. But this time, this man is supporting Jesus. And Jesus says, those who are not against us are for us. Welcome this man. He's on the team. Now this doesn't happen these days, does it? Religious leaders are not defensive. They're not jealous of other people. We just don't have these sorts of squabbles. So why have I got a picture of a ladder there? Does anyone know where this ladder is? This is at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem. There you can see it's the main entry for tourists. And you can see the ladder, uh, if you've got good eyesight, fair in the middle, that uh, middle window. Uh, it's actually been there around 300 years. So much for a Middle Eastern climate. I think in New Zealand it wouldn't have lasted 10 years. But it's been there 300 years. Why is it there? Nobody knows. No one knows who put it there. No one knows why it was put there. But no one, no one will dare move it or touch it. Why is that? Because in the church, and the Holy Sepulchre, you do not touch anything because there are six Christian denominations who administer the place 
And they are constantly fighting one another. And so no one has ever touched this ladder. Now let me give you an example. In 2008, in November, I think the 16th, 2008, there was a, a procession, I think it was of Coptic Christians, but it doesn't really matter. They could have, they could have been uh, Armenians, they could have been Greeks. And they were doing some procession as they do in, the, in this huge church with their cross. And a monk from one of the other non-nations was sitting outside the place where Jesus' tomb was supposed to be and somehow obstructed them and literally all hell broke loose. There were fisticuffs, monks fighting monks. Candlesticks were knocked over. The military police were called in. And that is typical. A few years later, there was a monk sitting outside another part. I think it was under a bit of disputed roof. They even fight about who owns the roof. And therefore, can it be fixed or not? It can't because they can't agree who owns it. This guy was sitting on a chair. He was getting hot. He moved that chair 20 centimetres. And that caused an outbreak of fighting because he'd encroached on someone else's territory. These are Christian leaders and the holiest sight in Christianity. It's unbelievable, isn't it? It's not really. It happens all the time, to our shame. This is a church in New York. It's the Church of the Good Shepherd. And it had a congregation rather like you, rather like West Hamilton. And they got to the point they could not continue in the Episcopal Church. So they had to leave their building. A building they knew the diocese would not be able to fill with with another congregation because they were all going together. So they said to the, the diocese, we'll buy it off you for 150 grand, which apparently was quite a reasonable price, a fair price. The diocese said no. Guess who they sold it to? They sold it to the Muslims. It is now an Islamic education centre. The Muslims paid $50,000 for it. And there was a caveat in the agreement that it could never be sold back to those horrible Christians who had left. Why do we do these things? It's complete nonsense. Those are extreme examples. But it can happen within CCA. We can be jealous of each other. There can be rivalries. There can be insecurities. Jesus says, stop it. Stop it. It's a bad witness, first and foremost, to everybody else. You have no authority. Graham was saying to me, I better, this, this is being recorded, so I've got to be a little bit careful what I say. But he said, would it be all right if he did the communion today? Because strictly speaking, you have to be ordained to do the communion. But I'm here, I'm overseeing it. I don't see why Graham shouldn't do the communion. You see, this is a human rule, isn't it? We need authority. We need respect and all that. We need good order. But we've got to be careful not to stop the gospel progressing because of our own preciousness about our own roles. Are we priests or whatever we want to say? Well, you better keep moving or you're going to be here until Easter. So I better get to the next verse, which is verse 41, where Jesus closes by saying, whatever... Uh, you do even if, uh, sorry, whoever, is, where are we? 41. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. What Jesus is saying is there that no act of service 
is too small. So much for your ladders and your hierarchies and all the rest of it. The person who gives a cup of water, they are serving me and serving the kingdom. And there's a nice little touch in this verse because he is in effect affirming or reaffirming or reassuring the disciples that they are still his disciples. They keep mucking up. They have fallen. But if they receive a glass of water because they follow Christ, it means they still follow Christ. They are still his people for all their failings. Let's go to the next section. The second section, which starts off with the saying about a millstone. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it will be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Well, you no doubt can imagine what a millstone is. It's a rather exaggerated image. A millstone uh, is estimated to weigh about 1,500 kilograms. Now, my wife loves jewellery, but one or two carrots around the neck is quite heavy enough. Thank you. Can you imagine a 150-kilogram necklace? You don't need to be thrown into the sea. You'd be flattened to the ground. Why does Jesus use this hyperbole? Well, partly, I think, because the image of a millstone uh, is one that uh, is a weight from which one could never come up again from the sea. It's an image of total annihilation. The worst thing in ancient Near Eastern culture was for you to be killed or to die and not have a proper burial, not have somewhere to mark your resting place. You were effectively erased from all memory. And there was great shame in not having a funeral. So the image here that Jesus uses, he's saying, if you lead someone else away from me, if you harm the gospel, it will be better for you to be totally annihilated than to do that. You, you can't get much stronger language, can you, than that. You're never going to wash up on shore. You're never going to be buried properly. You're going to be gone once and for all. So it's a pretty strong warning that what he is going to say should be taken very seriously. And then there are these three images of bits being cut off. If your hand causes you to sin, if your foot causes you to sin, if your eye causes you to sin, cut it off, rip it out. You're better off crippled, maimed than missing out because you have turned away, you have stumbled in your own walk with Christ. It's tough stuff. Remember when Trump was uh, elected uh, president and he made some pretty outrageous claims of what he was going to do in terms of walls and that sort of thing. And there was a very interesting opinion piece I read which said, don't take Trump literally, but do take him seriously. And I think that's the message here. These organs, the hand, the feet, the eye, we're not literally obviously meant to rip them out. Apart from anything else, we've got two of them, so if you've still got one, you've still got the same problem. 
if they were the problem. So don't take it literally, but by golly, we need to take it seriously. Because the alternative is to go to hell, says Jesus. Now again, this is not popular talk or imagery these days, but that's what Jesus says. If you don't get yourself sorted, if you don't remove temptation, whatever is the cause of your falling away, which may be causing others to stumble, in other words, your rivalry, your jealousy, your pride, then you won't get into the kingdom. You will end up in a place called Gehenna. Now, Gehenna is a valley. It's still there. Rather beautiful, isn't it? It wasn't back in the day. It's to the southwest of the uh, Temple Mounts. In other words, the Temple Mounts just up here to your left. And in this valley, in the early days of the kings, children were sacrificed to the god Molech in this valley. Terrible sin. And when Josiah found the book of the law in the late 7th century BC and reformed things, it stopped being the place where children were sacrificed because child sacrifice was stopped. But it became the city rubbish dump, which included the bodies of executed criminals or defeated enemies being dumped in there. Again, no proper burial. So a terrible thing to happen. And there was a constant fire burning which gives this image of ongoing perdition, of punishment. Actually, that's not what's intended. Again, it's total annihilation. The fire goes on, but the life or the body is quickly gone. So it's total annihilation. This is the hyperbolic imagery that Jesus uses. He says it's this serious. So you do need to get yourself sorted. And then we have what I call salt three ways. This, the image of salt here is used. This, is, this gets quite uh, complicated, but in, in verses 49 and 50, you actually have three uses of salt. The first one, Jesus says, everyone will be salted with fire. In other words, every follower. It's talking about sacrifice. In Leviticus 2.13, uh, Moses says, every sacrifice must be salted, purified. And then it will be burnt up and totally consumed. And if a sacrifice isn't totally consumed, it's considered unfit or worthless. So Jesus is saying, each of you will be salted with fire. You will be tested. You will suffer. But unless your lives are a living sacrifice totally, then your offering will not be pleasing. Again, it's radical stuff. It's radical stuff. You can't soften this. He says, don't lose your saltiness. Don't stop being like Christ. Don't lose your Christian character for any reason at all. Because if you do again, your life won't be of use. That's the preserving nature of salt. It enables us to affect the world in a positive way, but only if we're truly like Jesus. And then lastly, the image of a covenant of salt. That's the closing words. Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with one another. What does it mean to have salt among yourselves? You're familiar with the the story of Alibaba and the 40 thieves? Remember what happens when uh, the captain of the thieves comes to Alibaba's house for a dinner? 
and he's meditating how he's going to sort Alibaba out, how he's going to kill him. And he gives special instructions that he needs uh, special food. And that food must have no salt in it. Why? Because he intends evil. If you sit down with someone at table, you literally share the salt. You share fellowship. Hospitality, friendship, all that's involved. And there's no way that you can eat salt and then do harm to your host. Now that's a legend. But if you read Ezra chapter 4 and verse 14, you'll find the same thing. Those in Artaxerxes' court won't disobey him. Why? Because they say, we have shared in his salt. That's the literal wording. We have shared in his salt. We can't harm someone we've sat down at table with. Table fellowship is so important in the Bible. That's why Paul gets so angry in 1 Corinthians 11, the way they're abusing the Lord's Supper. They're not sharing the salt because they're harming one another. So Jesus' message is to the disciples is make sure that you're always mindful that you're sharing the salt when you gather in my name. And then there will truly be peace amongst yourselves. So it's rather a disparate collection of sayings. That's what makes the passage hard to preach about. But let's try and just finally pull them all together. The basic message is be like Jesus. And I know that, was it Ginny last week? Quoted from Philippians chapter 2. Jesus, though he was God, emptied himself of all that was glorious, took on the form of a slave, and came and died for us. That's the image that makes us salty. We need to think of others as better than ourselves, not get into those petty rivalries, which are so pointless anyway. We need to be humble. And we need to serve. So that's why I'm putting the, the picture. I want you to go away with that picture of that ladder. Because a ladder is a symbol of climbing, isn't it? There's no room for climbing. There's no room for rivalries. Think of the ladder that the church is outside. The church of the Holy Sepulchre. Scandalous rivalries between six ancient Christian denominations. And lastly, rejoice in suffering and in service. Paul's adamant that he rejoices in his suffering, not in spite of them, but actually in the suffering because he knows that suffering does him good, does his soul good, does his spirit good. Rejoice in suffering, rejoice in serving. And in that way, you'll be at peace with everyone. Satan will be driven back and God's kingdom will come and grow. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that Jesus not only teaches us how to live, but has shown us so perfectly what it means to humble oneself and to serve. Lord, give us the hearts, the same heart as our Lord Jesus. Lord, help us not to want to impress anybody else. Help us not to be threatened by anybody else. Help us to put aside our own pride and anything that weighs us down, any sin that clings to us, put that aside so that truly we might live at peace with one another and glorify you. In Christ's name we pray.